Uh, we have been looking at uh, the book of Colossians, and we're kind of going to take a break from that this morning, looking at a parallel um, uh, uh, set of truths here this morning. Um, and But we're going to stick with the theme of the preeminence of Christ. And that's a really fancy word, which, which simply means that Christ is superior to all, okay? That, that, that there is no one else to, in comparison to him, that Christ as God the Son is the supreme over all things, okay? So as we consider that, and uh, you, you saw that I read uh, Psalm 110, um, what, what I want to do is, is something that is, I, I've actually not done a message like this that I can remember. And so it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, last week we saw that Jesus reconciled us to God by giving us life, by giving his life up for us so that we, again, could have life. This week what I want to do is continue this theme of, of the preeminence of Christ but I wanted to look at another prophecy that ties all of this together. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing. As I've kind of looked at the Colossians passage and saw, okay, he's the preeminent one over the church. He's the preeminent one over all of creation. He's the preeminent one simply because he is who he is. He is God. And we, we've, looked at, we've looked at him in all of these different ways. And there was this one verse that just kept coming up. And again, for some of you, you're going to be like, ah, yeah, I already knew that. And that's fine. That's a great reminder for you. But it was something that that I, I just recognized and wanted us to explore. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And what we're going to be talking about today really is the preeminence of Christ when it comes to his preeminent or superior position. Now, because we're going to be going through a lot of passages of Scripture here. Um, I actually am going to give them to you in advance so that when I name something, you know what's coming next, okay? Now, don't get distracted with this to where, ooh, I'm going to look ahead and see what he's going to say. Work with me, right? But I want you to be able to do that, and I'm going to try to also, I know that we have some younger folks here, maybe those that are newer to the church. I'm going to try to give you the page numbers for your pew Bible. So that you can just pop right there, okay? So I just want to make you aware of that. But let me go ahead and begin by reading again Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to look through verse, um, verse 4. <clears throat> it says, the, uh, probably verse 5, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. So we'll stop there. And I just want to kind of explain through this passage and tell you why we're going to be looking at this. The psalm begins with a very deliberate and amazing line, right? The Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It is literally saying, Jehovah said to my Adonai, right? Jehovah, the self-existent one, said to another name for God, the Lord. This is clearly talking about God the Son. 
just as we saw in Colossians, he pre-existed all things. Christ is before all things, not just as in he's above them, but he actually existed prior to all things existing. He's the creator. Yet David is predicting a future reign. He's talking about something that's going to take place in the future. And I also want us to see that this emphasis and understand we're not going to deal with this psalm exclusively. We're going to see how this is used through the rest of Scripture. But what, what I want you to see here is that David is emphasizing the word your or you. Okay, so let, let, me, let me just help us with our pronouns. The Lord said to my Lord. So David is acknowledging that second person as his Lord, right? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, again, the first person that we saw introduced in this passage, shall send the rod of your, speaking my Lord, right? Of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. You see where this is going? All of this is about that second person, that Adonai, okay, that Lord. God the Father is doing all of this on behalf of God the Son. That's what we're seeing here. So then it goes on and says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent you, meaning that second person, David, as he's writing this, his Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, folks, we're not going to get into all that. But the point is this. This was a special priesthood that was over and above. It was beyond the priesthood that we saw, the earthly priesthood of Aaron. Okay? Again, I can't get into all that this morning, but we're going to allude to some of it. Then he says, the Lord is at your right hand. Now, I just want us to see something very important here. The Lord is at your right hand. This now is going back to the first person. So in your Bibles, you'll see, right, the Lord, verse 1, capital L-O-R-D. Okay, that is, ta- that, that is that word Jehovah, Yahweh. Okay, that's the self-existent one. Now he's being referred to as capital L, then small O-R-D, Adonai. The same name that the second person in line one is given. In other words, this, this, these names for deity are being interchanged here, and I believe purposefully by God himself, to show that the Lord, who is also the self-existent one, is at the right hand of my Lord, David's Lord. You with me? You with me? Really? Okay. All right. Because that's important. The first person, God the Father, talking about God the Son, I'm going to do all these things for you, and I, God the Father, am at your, God the Son, I'm at your right hand. Right? Now, the first one talks about him sitting down, okay, the Lord sitting down at the right hand of of the Father. That's that's a a place of honor and position, right? That's that preeminent position that we're talking about with Jesus. This other place here is kind of like how we say, this guy is my right-hand man, 
okay? He, he's, he's coming alongside of me. So the Father says, I'm coming alongside of you to execute all of this, to make this take place, right? And the whole point is, I, God the Father, I'm the one who is going to place everybody under you, all right? That's pretty cool stuff, isn't it? So, yeah, we've already got like a head explosion going on here, but we're not done. We're not done. So let's go back to verse 1, right? And we've seen that God the Father is the one who's going to put Jesus' enemies under the feet of Jesus. This was symbolic for a complete and total defeat of an enemy. It meant the same uh, as a more recent saying, like putting your heel or your foot or your boot on an enemy's neck. It was talking about total submission, right? You even hear people today sometimes saying, you know, you know we, we've got to cast the, 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 the boot off of our neck, right? What they're saying is, you know, <laughs> they're ruling over us. They're lording over us. We've got to throw that off, all right? Same type of language. For comparison, King Solomon talks about what David, his father, did in 1 Kings 5, 1 through 5. So you see, that's our first passage we're going to look at, 1 Kings 5, 1 through 5. Some of you said, oh, I'm going to get there. And so you're already there. It's good. So here's what it says. Ah, yes, page number. Thank you. Page 298. 298 in your pew Bibles. Thanks. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. So what is Solomon saying here? My, my dad, David, he wasn't able to do this. But now that... He, God has now suppressed all of his enemies and placed them under his feet. I can do that, right? So this was just an earthly example, but this is what's really wild. David is the one who's writing the psalm that we're talking about. And he's talking about his Lord. So he's not talking about himself. He's prophesying. He's speaking in advance of something that is going to happen. So... This prophecy is about the coming Messiah. So what did Jesus have to say about this? Jesus being the Messiah, what did he say? Turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. And you might have noticed, based upon the list that I have here, we've got a lot of verses to go through. But we're going to have fun with this. Just be ready. Be ready. Because I'm, 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 folks, I mean this. I'm, I'm really excited about just how God just takes this truth that we see in Psalm 110.1 and just puts this like this, this laser point right through uh, a certain part of the scriptures, okay? And there are some very important things that are hung on this scripture, all right? Again, going back to this idea of the preeminence of Christ. So, page number, thank you. 
page 856. This is going to be a problem for me. I'm just telling you. Page 856. <laughs> I made a promise, and I'm not going to... I'll tell you what I'm going to do. It worked. Okay, all right. I didn't touch anything, I promise. Okay, 856. Let's read here. Uh, starting in verse 41, Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, Well, the son of David, right? And he said to them, How then does David in the Spirit, right? God, the Holy Spirit, making sure this was written down in the past. How does David say in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Have you heard that before? Right? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? <laughs> you thought your mind was blown before, right? So let's continue. I love this. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare ask him any, uh, dare question him anymore. Now, that's important because we've got to look at this in context, okay? We're jumping into this context where the Sadducees and Pharisees were asking Jesus questions for the specific purpose of trying to trap him in his own words. They saw Jesus as a threat and they tried to discredit him, all right? That was their whole purpose behind asking these questions. And so then he turns the table on the Pharisees and asks them a question. He asked who David was referring to in Psalm 110.1. They answered rightly that the Messiah would be the descendant of David, right? That was part of the conversation. And Jesus credits the Holy Spirit, as we said, of inspiring David to write these words, Luke also talks about this occasion. If you go to Luke 20, Luke 20, which is page 912 in your pew Bible. I got it. Okay, Luke, Luke 20. <laughs> Again, starting in verse 41. And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. David therefore calls him Lord. How then, uh, how, how is he then his son? So as, as we look at this and consider that this is in this gospel, it is in the, I'm sorry, it's in Matthew's gospel, it's in Luke's gospel, but Mark also records the same thing. This is important stuff. It's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, right? Of course, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he was the one that David was speaking about. That's what he was doing. So here we got these guys. Hey, we, we got we, we to gotta set him up. So they ask him these hard questions, right? They ask him these really tricky questions, and he responds to their questions. Then he says, okay, now let me ask you a question. Not only did they not have an answer, but they all decided it's probably a good idea not to ask him any more questions, right? Because he looks really good and we look stupid, all right? But here's the point. This is toward the very end of Jesus' ministry. He's going to be arrested soon. What's he bringing them to? 
What's, what's the point? He's saying, who do you think I am? Right? That's where he's going. So now let's move ahead. We're going to move ahead to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, starting in verse 62, and that's on page 861. I'm getting the hang of this. Okay. <laughs> Matthew 26, 62 through 66. Some big chapters, right? Now, let me leave the context here real quick. This is in the middle of the trial that Jesus is going through. Series of trials, right? And so it says here, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? Right? He, they're making all these accusations against him. Do you answer nothing? What is it that, uh, that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Okay, I'm sorry. i got to stop just for a second and look at the um, irony of that situation. <laughs> I, I, really, I never thought about that before. I, I, I am basically, you know, in, in essence, bringing the audience of God in this against you, God. Just leave that there, right? That you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? So I'm, I'm summoning you by God to tell us, are you God? What does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, It is as you said, it is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man doing what? Sitting at the right hand of the power, that's God Himself, and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the future part of that. He's going back to Psalm 110. I'm going to be sitting at the right hand of God. That's where I'm going. There's your answer. Look at what their response is. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now we, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving death. Then they spat on his face and beat him. And others struck him in the, with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? That's the response that they have as they beseech him before God to tell him who he is. All right? Luke 22, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and skip that part just because of time, but Luke 22 is another cross-reference to this passage. It's the same account that we have here and... We also see that, math, uh, that Mark, again, is a part of this. Mark also uh, gives this account. So, so what do we see here happening in this passage? Uh, Jesus has been betrayed. He's taken into custody. He's on trial before the council, uh, and their goal is to kill him. What does Jesus do? He quotes Psalm 110.1 to the same audience, by the way, that he silenced earlier because the Pharisees help make up the council or the Sanhedrin. So some of these same guys would have heard him already quote Psalm 110.1. Surely they did not miss that Jesus brought them back to David's words 
But this time, he left no doubt that he claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be God's son. And that is exactly how the Pharisees understood it, right? Based upon their response. Now, they didn't believe him that he was, but they believed that he was claiming to be. So then how do the New Testament writers refer to Psalm 110.1? That's what we're going to move to next. We've seen what David prophesied. We understand where, that, where we're coming from there now. And we see that, you know, that idea of, of, of having enemies under someone's feet is, 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 a, is a fairly common term. Now we move forward and Jesus is basically saying he is that Lord that David is referring to. And he's saying, I'm soon going to be at the right hand of God the Father. Okay, I'm going to take that place. That's what he says. Turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, which is on page 944 in your pew Bibles, starting in verse 22. A little bit longer passage here, but just look at this narrative. And, and uh, what, we're, what we're doing is, is we're delving right, into here, right in here into um, Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost. So this was after uh, Jesus rose again, and this is, this is after the Holy Spirit then comes upon, uh, comes upon them, and then they turn around and they start to minister. So it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as, as you yourselves also know. Okay, just again, stop for just a moment. What he's saying is, you've seen his works. You can't deny that. You've seen his works. It was God working through him. Okay? Clearly. Him, verse 23, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pain of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh was also resting in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now listen to this. This is great. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Okay, here, here's what we would say in our common... He's in the ground. We can exhume his body anytime. He's there. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, 
that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God had raised up, of which you are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, here we go, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Right? There was a response then. We're not going to get into that this morning. But here's the point. Who is Peter talking about? What's he referencing here? First, he quotes Psalm 16. He notes that when David wrote about the Holy One not abandoned to death and hell, David was foretelling about Jesus. He clearly explains that. David was dead, and his body was still in the tomb, but David also wrote Psalm 110 about ascending to heaven. So David was not writing about himself. That's what Peter is explaining here. So Peter's entire message flowed to his final point, that Jesus, the one people crucified, was both God and the Messiah. The Son had now risen bodily and was seated in his place of honor and authority as the Lord. Folks, that's the central part of Peter's message. As he's talking about everything that Jesus did, it ultimately comes down to he's the one that David talked about. He's the Lord. He's God. He came. He's the Messiah. And oh, by the way, you killed him. I mean, it's how, how much more explicit can you get? He's the chosen one. You rejected him. Then they said, what, what do we do? And of course, it was to trust Christ. Let's move on now to the book of Romans. Romans 8, 31 is where we're going to start. And I'm not sure what's happening to uh, all my stuff here, but <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but it's coming up. So, okay, all right. Maybe this is the problem. Okay, Romans 8, 31. Okay, we're going to keep moving here. Um, and that is on page 980 in your books. Romans 8.31. Here's Paul speaking. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And who did, I'm sorry, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he uh, not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is, the, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet all these things we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. So I'm going to stop. No, I'm going to keep on going. Sorry. There's more good stuff. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, what can separate us from him? Paul references this prophecy, Psalm 110, obviously now fulfilled, to help us understand four very important truths here. God is for us. God is for us. I think that sometimes we get confused when we are expecting God's blessings to align with our wants. And we say to ourselves, God is not for me. Folks, he is. We see this in this passage so beautifully. The second truth that I believe that Paul wants to see here is the same God who sacrificed his son for us will graciously give us everything that we need. Do you see that there? And, and it's, not like, it's not like he's saying, well, you know, he gave his son, so he's going to give us all these other things. No, the, the emphasis is he gave his son so of course he's going to give us everything else that we need. He gave us his son. That's the emphasis here. Number three, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And number four, I don't want us to miss this, not necessarily in order. Christ intercedes for us. Wow. See, Paul expands on this idea of Christ being in this position, being in this place of power, really. And he says he's also our intercessor. Jesus is our advocate as the one who paid for our sin so that no charge against us can stick. Isn't that amazing? In one sense, Christ is our defense attorney. Picture that. We have charges against us, legitimate charges, charges that require death. The death penalty is actually applicable to us. We did it. And instead, Jesus gestures to us. Gestures to us with the scar in his hand and says, this one here, I took that punishment. I paid for that. There is nothing left to charge us with. And our case is dismissed. Amen. Folks, that's amazing. It's amazing. And it is a centerpiece. The centerpiece of that is the risen Christ at the right hand of God. So we're seeing, right? Man, this is big. This one verse is big. And it continues. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the very beginning of that contains the very simple, um, um, I'm going to say rendition. I can't think of the right word, but it gives the gospel very simply. So you read the first part of, of, of 1 Corinthians 15, and you're going to see exactly what the gospel is. We're going to move a little forward in this, in this context here, and starting in verse 20, and 1 Corinthians 15, 20 is page 998. Okay, in your pew Bible. 
I know some of you are like, he's going to forget. I didn't forget. Okay, so here we go. Starting at verse 20. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We talked about that in Colossians uh, not that long ago. For since by man came death, by man, talking about the God-man Christ Jesus, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. He's going back and forth. You'll see this in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now is that all as in all people? No, we're talking about those who have faith in him, right? But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. He, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Listen to this now. This is where it gets really awesome. This is where Paul throws something else in here. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under, under him, it is evident that he who put all these things under him is, expect, is, is accepted. Okay? In other words, it's not counting God, right? But that he, Jehovah, God the Father, has put all things under his feet, and that includes death itself. And that goes right back to what we just saw in Romans, doesn't it? One of the enemies that Jesus conquered is death. We have life through Christ because he conquered death, not just by dying on the cross, but by rising again and sat down in his completed position of power. Again, this little verse is central. Let's move on. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. We have referenced this passage a couple of times because it is just chock full of some amazing truths about Christ our Lord, okay? So as we've talked through Colossians, we've looked at this passage a couple of times, but I want you to start in verse 16 here, okay? Verse 16 and uh, that's uh, page 1012. Where we're getting up there. Page 1012, okay, in your pew Bibles. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. Do not cease to give, uh, I do not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers. This is Paul talking to these, these uh, Ephesian believers, the, the, the church in Ephesus that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Listen to this stuff. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, in the which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Think of the significance of that to us. All things under his feet, right? 
And then we look at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says that he desires that the Ephesians would understand and experience all the amazing blessings that come with knowing Christ. He's listed some of them. He's listed them a little bit general, but they're still amazing. Paul ties all to God, raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand. The passage ends with God having put all things under the feet of Jesus and, we can't forget this, adding, making Jesus head of the church. Colossians chapter 3. We are going to go to Colossians just very briefly here. Colossians 3.1. All right. It says here, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Let's move on just a little bit. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Well, first of all, how do we know that? Because he's in glory. And that's what he promised. But what this verse is telling us is that Christ's preeminent position should help us focus on what is most important to focus on the things that matter for eternity. That's what he's telling us to do here. Look to Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. We're going to move on to the book of Hebrews. We have several passages to look at in the book of Hebrews. We're going to begin with Hebrews 1. And I will tell you, this is Hebrews 1 is really where this kind of struck me as I was studying. Um, it, it's, it's where kind of all this came about. And I was like, man, I've seen this a couple of times. And so just, just broaden this, this subject, okay? By the way, do you understand why I'm doing this? I mean, seriously. Do, do you see how this ties into this whole idea of the preeminence of Christ? And do you understand that here we have David declaring Jesus God? Right? And then we see Jesus. He's saying, I'm God, and I'm going back to what David said. And then we see all the results of what he did and how that matters. Okay? So we're just following along what Jesus uh, um, or what David said about Jesus, then what Jesus said about himself, and then what the biblical writers are now saying about Jesus. Okay? So let's, let's keep on moving here. Um, Hebrews 1. Uh, verse 1, and that is on page 1035. 1035. Sorry, this is is big stuff. I mean, it's, it's hard to keep everything going. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by their prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He just kind of threw that in. Oh, by the way, Jesus created everything. Okay, this is kind of toss that in too, right? That's big, okay? Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image, image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow. And again, this is just an encapsulation of everything that we've already looked at in the book of Colossians. We've cross-referenced this passage as well. Basically, what he's saying here is God spoke to us by Jesus. 
That's how he spoke to us in these latter times. John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word being Jesus, the very expression of who God is, God's Word living among us. That's what that's talking about. Christ himself, right? So again, we recently looked at this passage in correlation to uh, what Paul was saying in, in Colossians, declaring Christ to be far greater than any and all things. The writer of Hebrews says that Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But the author writes, Jesus did this after making purification for sins. It's a very Hebrew way of saying that Jesus paid for our sins and made us acceptable before God. Let's continue in the same chapter. So you already got your page number, right? I didn't forget you. But we're going to look at verse 4 and then jump down to verse 13. I have a reason for that. Verse 4, a continuation of what we've just read. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Okay, keep that thought in mind. Jumping now down to verse 13. But to which of the angels has he, I'm talking God the Father now, ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Listen to what he's doing here. In verse 4 and 13, they're basically bookends. The writer of Hebrews employs a series of fulfilled Old Testament prophecies to make the case that Jesus is greater than the angels. We're not taking the time to look at that. But he bookends it with verses 1 through 4 and 13, which is Psalm 110.1, that Jesus is God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So even as he's comparing Christ to what people elevated, oh, the angels. Some people were even worshiping the angels at this time. He says, no, no, Christ is far superior than them. Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6. In your pew Bibles, 1039. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. We're almost there, folks. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Okay, if you see in your Bibles, it's capital O for one, right? Okay, earthly, they offered sacrifices. So this other priest needs to offer a sacrifice too, right? For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all these things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. 
Okay, now there's a lot here, but let's just, let's just kind of narrow it down to this. Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. He is superior to the Hebrew priesthood and the sacrifices. They represented the old covenant. They were merely a shadow of the one who was to come. The better promises are those made to Abraham and David. They were what we would call a unilateral covenant. It was God simply telling Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. It was God telling David, I'm going to do this for you. The difference was the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant was, we're going to make a pact together. I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. If you don't do that, then I'm going to do this. Okay, that was the idea. That's not, that's not the covenant. That's not the covenant that, that God made with um, Abraham and David. But it's the same covenant that he makes with us. There is nothing required of us. He does it all. He does it all. He provided that sacrifice for us. And the passage starts with the fact that he's done, that he's seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 11. I don't think that's right. Yes, it is. I'm in, I'm in Hebrews 11. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's not about Sarah. Okay, <laughs> Hebrews 10, verse 11. <laughs> and every priest stands ministering. Sorry about that. One more thing here. Page 1041. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Isn't that awesome? For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He's perfected the sanctified. Jesus is completing those who are set apart for salvation. That's what that means. The same one who's finished the work. Yes, in real time, he's, he's bringing us into his family as, as we respond to him in faith, right? That's in real time. But it's done already. He's already completed the work. And then we finish our study with Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, very familiar passage. And I'm just going to apologize in advance. There's so much here, but we're going to stay focused on this idea of how, um, uh, sorry, Psalms 110 verse 1 fits into this. A lot of numbers, folks, a lot of numbers. <laughs> so we're going to read this. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay? What are we doing while we're running? Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus while we're running this race, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne 
of God. Wow. Folks, we lay aside our sin and the other things that weigh us down because of what Christ did. And we focus on him. We live our lives for the long haul. The picture is an endurance runner keeping our eyes focused on Christ. So I have a question. Is there anything about our salvation and standing in Christ that is not tied to Psalm 110 verse 1? I mean, we just looked at it. Man, I mean, this is central, right? The Ephesians passage alone answers this question. So why is this verse so central? It's because it declares Jesus as the victorious God who is greater than any and all things. That's why this passage is so central. David foretells it. Jesus said, I'm here. And the New Testament writers recognize what he did. The greatest demonstration result of that, of who he is, is the gracious self-sacrificing redemption of sinners. Now, how do we apply this? I'd like to ask some specific application questions based upon the preeminence or the superiority of Christ, which we just demonstrated this morning. So let me ask you some questions. And let me ask me some questions. Do I, on a practical daily basis, recognize Christ as my absolute authority and the greatest lover of my soul? Is that what's on my mind, understanding that? Does my obedience reflect a proper submission to the greatness of Christ and what he has done for me? Do I live my life experiencing the power of God and the full blessings of God based upon Christ's finished work? Does my attendance and participation in worship and church show that I accurately recognize Christ as the head of the church, the preeminent one, the one who is over the church? Does my relationship with others demonstrate how Christ reconciled my relationship with God? Does my service to the body reflect my love for the body of Christ? Does my stewardship of my resources and giving to God's work confirm his lordship over my possessions? Now, I asked a lot of questions there. If you heard me say that you have to do less of a certain thing or more of a certain thing or serve more or give more, then you didn't really quite listen to what I said. What I was asking was, is my life an appropriate reflection of Christ in me and Christ over me? You have to determine how you measure up. I have to determine how I measure up. Are any of us going to measure up perfectly? No. No, there's, there's, there's one perfect one. But based upon what Christ did, based upon who he is, based upon his present ministry on our behalf, what is our response? 
And just so you understand that there is application for all, there is also application for me, and I don't miss this. Do I lead with the constant awareness that this is Christ's church? Do I prepare my messages to exalt Christ and nourish the body? Folks, we have to ask ourselves some questions. But as we ask ourselves some questions, we already know the answer. The answer is that we have the God of this universe who loved us so much that he came to this earth to to give it all. To give it all on our behalf. To provide a way of salvation. To completely eliminate any barrier between ourselves and God, not only for salvation, but for the preservation of us for forever. (laughs) And he did all of that and rose again and sat down in the exalted position at the right hand of God for forever. A great God, an amazing God, a God that we can't even describe truly in words, also demonstrated a great love, an amazing love that we cannot put into words. We can't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when you tell us that not only our is your word inspired, but that every word is truth. (laughs) This is a great example of that. One verse that has this, this weaving effect through the new covenant. This is partly a fulfillment of what you promised, David. You told David that, that there would be someone that would come after him whose, whose throne would be forever whose reign would be forever. And by the Holy Spirit, he spoke of the one who would be his king, of the one who would be his savior, but also the one who would, earthly speaking, be his son. I don't understand all of that. But thank you for sending Christ. Thank you for your great love that you demonstrated to us. Thank you for fulfilling the only thing that would take away our sin. Heavenly Father, there is a sufficient message here. If there's even someone here who does not know you as Savior, to recognize that Jesus Christ is the God of this universe. He came to this earth to humbly take on our likeness, physically die for us, give it all so that we could have life in him. And I pray, Lord, that you'll work in their life if they don't know you as Savior even today. But Lord, I pray that you'll work in our lives if we are your children. Recognizing not only the great gift that we have, but the great God who gave it. In Christ's name, amen.